Okay, this morning we're starting, um, not starting, we're continuing in our um, study of First Peter. So take your Bibles and turn to First Peter. First Peter chapter 3, we're moving on to chapter 3 this morning. As you're turning there, let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for bringing us here to worship you. We know, Lord, part of our worship to you is listening. It's hearing. So the word of God gets down to our soul. And it does the transforming work it ought to do. It was designed to do. So, Lord, make us good listeners. Put, our, put us into the equation. Let us not think this is for someone else, but this is for us. And I pray, Lord, as we learn the principles of submission, that we would actually not only be able to live them out, but be able to share them with others who may be going through circumstances like the Bible's describing. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, I pray that people would just mature in the faith. They would grow from babies to young men who, who can learn how to use the word of God and fight the enemy with it. And then spiritual fathers who just learn to walk by faith every day and rest and trust in you. So grow us today, Lord, by your word. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're in uh, chapter 3 of First Peter. We have been learning about submission, and um, <clears throat> so we're learning about submission this morning, and uh, as we consider that, we as God's children living in this world must learn, actually learn submission. It's a learned behavior, uh, and the word submit, as I have been saying already, means putting oneself under the authority of another or to take a subordinate place. I would like to add a a definition, add to that definition, and adding to that definition, this is uh, not working. Um, Adding to that definition that it means a voluntary selflessness, a submission which is based on the death of pride and the desire to serve. So, in thinking of that, the function of our willing submission to God has been structured by him in order to keep the unity for us as God's people so that that unity that God gives us would not be hindered, but actually would be enhanced and of course, that that unity is is being enhanced by um, several things: the submission to the Word of God, uh, submission to God through His will, and then submission to God through His authority. 
the first application we already saw of a Christian's responsible behavior is on how they ought to relate to governing authorities within the form of government that anyone would live at any one time. And the second application that we looked at was masters, uh, servants to their masters, or for modern-day application, workers to their bosses. And then between the two applications, we saw a th- the third would have been the ultimate example of Jesus Christ, that Jesus' uh, submission to the Father's will which included suffering and death. So Jesus begins is our ultimate example of this with the Lord's teaching us on submission. So the pattern for Christian, the Christian to submit and to follow is Jesus Christ himself. We saw last time that Jesus is our great example in his life. That means that he did not sin. He did not use words to uh, bring insult that he also did not use any violence or threats. And then we saw that Jesus is our great substitute in his death, that uh, Jesus Christ, there's some things that he did do. He did hand himself over to the Father. Uh, he did carry our sins away. He, did, he took the curse from uh, them and then, and then nailed them, in a sense, to the cross and then he bore our sins so that we would die to sin and live the righteousness. And then, of course, the next thing we saw last week was that Jesus is our watchful shepherd. The results of Christ's mission to redemptive suffering was conversion. Uh, if you notice in chapter 2 of First Peter, in verse number 24, it says, for he, he himself bore our sins in in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And then it says, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned or turned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. So the end result of the suffering of Christ and the submission of Christ to the Father's will was that our spiritual healing, that it says in verse number 25 that we were actually uh, brought to the Lord. Uh, and of course, Christ's stripes, uh, by Christ's stripes, the wounds of sin had af- had, uh, that afflict- afflicted us are now gone because of what the Lord has done. So now the Lord Jesus Christ is our shepherd. He is our overseer. He's the one who leads us safely home. So in other words, conversion brings us to the shepherd who is kind to us and who will protect us and who will lead us to the place we all want to go. We all want to end up in heaven. But the only way you can possibly end up in heaven is by following Jesus Christ and believing in his death, his resurrection, uh, and his burial, death, and resurrection which in that secures our salvation. So when we are, do submit, and we submit because Jesus Christ our Lord submitted himself to scourging and beatings and finally death on the cross in which he died for our sakes, then we can apply 
these principles of submission in our own life. So this morning we come to another point of submission, and that would be in verse number 1 of chapter 3. It says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, this third application of a Christian's responsible behavior is on how wives ought to submit to their own husbands. Now, I know today that is not popular. Uh, that is not a popular uh, in even our conversations. It's not popular in certain uh, places or in our society, but in Scripture, it's very needful. Here we see some Christians that have the obligation in a special way to submit to their spouses. In this text is found the rationale for the submission of wives to their husbands. And this principle of submission when understood and practiced, will actually save many marriages. These wives had to be strong in their faith. They had to be strong in following in the footsteps of Jesus. They had to entrust themselves to the Lord in their situation. They had to resist the cultural pressure of the world and the flesh so that they would not respond in merely a carnal way. They had to practice restraining their remaining sinful passions and desires in order to please the Lord. And that is not an easy thing to do without the power of the Spirit of God. These women had to be strong in their faith. They had to know what they believed and, and be resolved in that. So instead of trying to change her circumstances in this text, she must conform her behavior to the will and the pleasure of her Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus remains her example of submission. Her Lord Jesus, who submitted to suffering and death so that she could be saved, made right with God and be forgiven of all sins and have the gift of eternal life. That must be on the forefront of these women that are mentioned here in this passage. And don't miss the fact that Scripture presents the wife in her proper role distinction. Wives take a subservient role in the marriage relationship because that is the way God designed it. Whether she takes that role distinction with a willing, submissive spirit is another thing. That's another issue. And so this morning, we, we really are looking at this whole first things, that the submission of wives to their husbands. So now let's look, look at our text, and let's look at what's being said here. It says in verse number one, again, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, let me just say this, that these wives are women who most likely heard the gospel. They were already married. 
They heard the gospel. They got saved. They became born again to God's family. All right? And they went back into their home with an unsaved husband. All right? That's the picture here. That's what's going on here. All right? Now, that's what I want you to have in your mind. So this particular passage, this verse 1, this, this focus is emphasizing the close relation of, that wives have to husbands. Husbands, wives and husbands, we know from Scripture, are one flesh once they become husband and wife. They're joined together by the Lord. So the phrase, in the same way, points back to the example that Jesus said for dealing with those who would be unreasonable, unjust, and even treat their wives in a harsh manner. Subsequently, Scripture is addressing Christian women who will find themselves in a marriage that is less than ideal. Now look with me again at verse number uh, chapter 3, verse number 1, and if you notice, it says, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Now, that's very significant because the Scripture is now telling us the husband is not just an unbeliever, but he is hostile to the word of God. That he does not like that his wife has become a believer. It has changed many things in their marriage. So subsequently, again, Scripture is addressing these women who have now entered into a marriage with an unsaved man. What is she to do? What is she to do? Should she leave? Should she get a divorce? It's time to get a divorce. What should she do? See, that's the question. That would be the question. That's the question today. Well, if you notice the little word if there in Scripture, in verse number one, it says, if any of them are disobedient to the word. That, that word if, is, it's a small word, but in, in the Greek language, which the New Testament was written in, there's conditions of this word. There's a first and second and third class conditional if. Well, right here is a first-class conditional if, which really assumes that a situation for the sake of... It assumes a situation for the sake of argument. In other words, it's like saying, for the sake of argument, let's just say this is a real situation. And you find yourself in a marriage that because you, the wife, are now a believer and now now living in a marriage in which your husband is an unbeliever, then this is the condition of your situation. So if you find yourself in this situation is what it's saying there. Now, then how should a wife, if she's in that situation, follow in the footsteps and example of her shepherd, Jesus Christ? That's the question. Now, let me also add, this is more than hypothetical. This is actually reality. It happens all the time in every single generation. And my heart really goes out to all those who are living or who have lived in situations in which you have an unsafe spouse. I probably do not know 
the half of the hurts and difficulties which surround your life. But I do know this, that Jesus is well acquainted with you and with your situation. He is acquainted with your hurts and your heartaches and your loneliness. For it is to you that he has penned by holy men of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this special portion of Scripture just for your help, just for your instruction, and ultimately for the salvation of the soul of your spouse. So there is a special goal. That is the focus. The focus is her husband, and the special goal is found in verse number 3. And look at it at again. It says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. You see that little phrase there? They may be one. Now, that's the goal of the Christian wife with an unsaved husband, that the husband may be one or may be gained for Christ, for the cause of the gospel, that God not only commands submission, but he uses it as a powerful spiritual influence in a home that practices it. In other words, when we submit in difficult situations, God enters into our situation. And he does things that we cannot do, that no one can do, and that What the world says to do will not solve your problem. It will make actually your problem worse. So the Christian wives' view is different than the present world system's view. She views it as a platform of evangelism to display Christ-like behavior right in the condition of living with an unbelieving husband who is even hostile and resistant to the truth. So getting out of the situation is not the goal. It's not how should I get out of it, but how should I live for the Lord in it? That's the difference, and that's the hard part. So therefore, the main emphasis here is on how the Christian wife is to function within her existing conditions in a manner in which the Christian wife conducts and behaves herself. So when the question would be, what then are the, Christians, the Christian wives' instructions in order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? That would be, the question. Well, let's look at the answer to that question because there are special instructions accompanying that. And if you notice in verse number three, or chapter three, verse number one again, the last segment of the, the verse, it says that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Did you ever think that behavior can be so powerful? Christian behavior can be so impactful 
on the mind and heart of someone else, especially your spouse, especially the one you live with every single day. So she has special instructions from God, right found right in the word of God. And so the first thing that we see is that in learning submission is that this special instruction comes with this. It says, how do we win them? In verse number one, it says, I win them without the word, without a word. Notice what it says in verse number one again. It says that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So this is the first thing, without a word. It doesn't say without the word. It says without a word. That means, it does not mean without the word of God. Because salvation comes through the word of God. Like it says in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passes from death into life. And then, of course, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So it cannot mean without the word of God. But it does mean without a word. Now, that, that, that is connected to behavior, right? Behavior becomes the significant word here in this passage, all right? So what is she to do? Well, biblically, this is what she's to do. She's to, number one, act like Jesus. And we already saw in our passage, she's to follow what Jesus did not do. And what did Jesus did not, what, 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 what did Jesus not do? Well, he did not sin, right? He did not, that means that she's not to use sinful practices to accomplish the goal. She's to leave those temptations alone. She's to leave the advice of people that are given her bad advice alone. And she's to follow in the steps of Jesus. And she's, secondly, she is not to use words to bring insult. Right? She's, in other words, to not only be the innocent party in living before the eyes of the Lord, but also she is not to use words to argue. Right? And then, of course, the last one would be she's not to go to blows, violence, threats. And, of course, we know one of the most difficult situations a police, officers, a police officer will tell you, the calls they dread the most are domestic calls because they say this, nobody's a winner. A cop goes in there to try to help somebody, and they're the bad guy. You know, and then, you know, you do what you have to do, and then the people are back together again. They're fighting again. All right, so it's a vicious cycle. But nonetheless, she's given instruction to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And then, of course, she's also given instructions to do what Jesus actually did. And one of the things that she can actually practice what Jesus did from verse number 23 is of chapter 2 is he handed himself over to the one who judges righteously, all right, Jesus left judgment to God the Father rather than take action himself against, against his enemies. So Jesus suffered calmly and patiently. And why did he do that? Because he had confidence 
in God. So consequently, again, the Christian wife is to put these things into practice and trust God with the results. She cannot change someone's heart. She can't even change her circumstances. But she can respond to her circumstances in a way that pleases the Lord. That's what she can do. And when she does that, God enters in. And God gives everything that's needed to be able to live in a way that's pleasing to him and powerful before the eyes of her husband. So she can actually put into practice the biblical principles in her situation. Now, how does that look practically for her when she follows the example of Jesus? Well, practically, it could mean this, without much talk, right? Without speaking a lot. It could mean without nagging discussion, without arguing or temper tantrums, without whining or pouting, without preaching to him, without shoving tracks in his face and leaving the Christian radio on loud enough for him to hear it, without manipulation or getting back at him. In other words, there's no revenge without denying him marital bedroom privileges. See, that's what the wife is to do without a word. And when she does it, and she leaves the results to God, then she's being led by her shepherd and her overseer, and she's pleasing him. All right, so that brings me to my next thing, and it's what she's to do, and it's this. She's to win him with proper behavior. Now, look what it says in our text in verse number one, the end of verse number one and verse number two. I already mentioned in verse number one, it's by the behavior of the wives in verse one. And then verse number two, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Again, the, you can see the Bible's focusing on behavior. So she's to win him by her behavior. And it says, by her chaste and respectful behavior. So yes, by the Christian wife's manner of life, by her character, by her attitude, she's to win over her husband. The fruit of a a true Christian comes out of her. It's not, of course, the fruit of her flesh from the past, so it wouldn't be anything like... uh, enmities or strife or jealousy or outbursts of anger or disputes or dissensions or factions. It wouldn't be anything like that, but it would be the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians would be that of joy and love and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. All those things would be coming out of her singularly, Because remember, that's not a plural word. That happens all at once by the Spirit of God. And it comes out of her. So in other words, the husband sees Christian behavioral principles lived out daily before his eyes. He's probably stepping back and says, this is not the woman I married. Matter of fact, this is not the woman that I knew a year ago or a month ago. This woman's different. 
Before, she'd get in a good argument with me, but now she's not. And she has a smile on her face. So, in other words, he must see in her behavior a blessed change that is connected to her God, to the gospel message, and to her local believers. He must see her fear of God, meaning that she does not take serving God lightly. It's real. Her conversion's real. She is seriously dedicated to believing the truth found in the word of God. And her priorities are in check. God first, then my husband. God first, then my husband. That's the priorities. It's always God first. So her behavior is, the Bible's using the word there, chaste, right? Which really means she is morally pure in the whole of her life. She is not a woman who flirts. She is not a woman who, because she's now converted, is involved with any kind of monkey business. She plays no games. She is a one-woman man, and it's the woman that, it's the man that she married, and she's still dedicated to him, even more so because she's a believer. So he also must see how she is not falsely manufacturing these behaviors for whatever means. She's the real deal. She's the real thing. In other words, he's seeing a real, genuine believer live out the principles of Scripture right before his eyes. And you know when you're living together, you see everything, don't you? You see all the little details. You see all the little faults. You see the good and the bad and the ugly. It's all there, right in front of your face when you're married. But she's also showing him a consistent respect for her husband's headship and understands her subordinate role before God. Her behavior overall is respectful. And women, if you don't know that, if you don't know this by now, that goes a long way. This passage of Scripture in Ephesians, if you notice what it says there, it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their, own, to their husbands in everything. And look at verse 33. It says, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and a wife must see, must see to it that she what? Respects her husband. All right, now again, I want you to remind you, this is an unsaved man who is against the gospel, against the teaching of the word of God. He's an unbeliever. And so therefore, she is to maintain that respect, and that respect is catching his attention. That's what it's doing. So then getting back to this, there is a, the next way she's to win him is she's to win him with proper adornment, with proper adornment. Now let's look at verse number three of first, number, of, of first Peter, chapter three, verse three. 
And if you notice, here, there's, you're going to find here a negative example of conduct. Not with externals, in other words, or outward things, but then a positive example of conduct. Notice what it says in verse 3, of chapter 3. It says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. And that word adornment is the word cosmos. Sometimes the word is used to mean world, but here it actually means something that is well arranged. Or in other words, we get the word cosmetics from, right? Women use cosmetics to adorn themselves, right? That's what they do. And right, so he is saying here, listen, your adornment must not be merely external. And then he goes on and he uses three examples. The braiding of hair, in other words, going after the latest styles of hairdo. And then secondly, not wearing showy, expensive jewelry. And then, of course, not wearing fine, elaborate, expensive clothing. Now, there's nothing wrong in and of itself in those things. The Bible is not necessarily censoring those things. That's not what it's doing. What it's doing, it's making a contrast between what is temporal and what can be put off and on and what is eternal that cannot be put off and on. That's what it's doing, right? And a woman is looking at herself and saying, okay, uh, these are not the things I'm to spend my time with. For example, when God's people spend too much time on worldly and external things in the prophet of Isaiah, and the people became proud in arrogance in all the externals of life, notice what happened. I want you to take your Bibles very quickly, and I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 3, verse 18 to 26. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 18 through 26. And notice what it, while you're getting there, look at what it says. So here's God's judgment on the arrogance of the people. Now, if you follow the argument in Isaiah, you'll find right in chapter 1 that the animals knew more of who God was than the people did. All right, That's the indictment against them. Well, now you get to chapter 3, and what do you see? These people are all external. It's all about show. It's all about presentation. It's not about the heart, and God hates that. Notice what it says in verse number 18 of Isaiah chapter 3. It says, but, it says, in that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, and festival robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Verse 24, now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and a braiding instead of uh, branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn and deserted she will sit on the ground. 
See, that's God's judgment against people who just spend time on the external, the temporal stuff. God hates that kind of stuff. He wants to know what's going on in your heart. He wants to know how you look there. All right, that was the passage of Scripture. And um, now let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I want you to see something else that he instructs us in. So the Scriptures, again, are not censoring these things, but putting them in perspective, placing them in the category of the temporal, the external, or the fading beauty of something. You can take these beauty-making instruments and you can turn them on or you can turn them off. You can put them on, you can put them off. However, these say nothing about the inner heart and the character of the person. Someone can be very stylish, in fact, and yet be as wicked as all get in the core of their being. Ladies, though, it's not okay, though, for the the extent of your own wardrobe to be old T-shirts and sweatpants. Dressing nicely, modestly, and appropriately can show a dignity, a strength, a joy that flows from a wise and a grateful heart. Nonetheless, dress and appearance are of little value. Dress and appearance are of little value to God. When more value is placed on the external and little or no value is given to the inner heart and character, then selfish pride fills the vacuum. We become empty shells if we just take care of the external. See, we we spend more time on our financial portfolios for our retirement than we do on our eternal existence with God, where we're going to go when we die. There's something wrong with that. We have to take care of our heart. So the Christian wife, then, must be beyond attracting attention to herself. Glamour is something you can put on and take off. Subsequently, she is not to major on external decorations, but on the external stuff of a godly internal character. All right, so let's look at 1 Peter, because now he gives a positive example of conduct. This is what you're to do. And if you notice, he really says this. It's the inside that counts. Look at verse 4. Verse number four of chapter three, it says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So this is what she's to do. Now she is to spend time developing her conscience and her heart, her mind and her will. That's what she's to do. So the inside counts more than anything else. In other words, let the true beauty flow from a transformed internal person of, heart, of, of the heart, have a submissive behavior that adorns your conduct, and that's how it would look. And then a second thing in our passage is this. 
It is the eternal quality that counts. If you notice again, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. In other words, this is the unfading and lasting beauty of a woman that comes from where? From her inside. These are the characteristics of a regenerate heart, of a born-again person. And what are they? A gentle spirit. Some translate it meek spirit. But meekness really does mean power under control. She is in control of her person because she's walking in the spirit of God and she has a a gentleness and a control about her and a quiet spirit about her that is very, very attractive. It's magnetic. So both these qualities mark a change deep within her, which are manifested in her temperament and in her character, in her behavior, and it springs from an abiding relationship with God. This woman is being transformed like the first part of First Peter by the word of God. God is doing a, a job on her with the scriptures. And it's coming out of her, and her husband cannot but notice. Who is this lady that I'm living with? That I find secretly in my heart very attractive in a way I never saw before. Well, another passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it says this, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So in other words, if you claim to be godly, then it's going to show in your person. It's even showing here in the externals how you dress. Are you bringing attention to yourself in your dress? Are you being too provocative in your dress? You know, a lot of the clothes out today are for men. You know, it's like the clothes were sprayed on you. That's That's not a good example for men and for you to say that you're godly. In other words, a godly woman is watching how she dresses. She's dressing for her husband, but she's also dressing for those who are going to look at her life. Those who are she's going to meet in public. She's not taking the cues of the world about how to dress and how much you can show. No, she's being very modest and discreet about herself. She's, she's, she's showing to the world that she is different, that she is respectful to those men that she doesn't even know around her that can see her. See, that's what she's doing. It says also in 1 Timothy, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And and I do want to mention that godliness is discipline. If you want to get good at godliness, practice it. You want to get good at playing an instrument, you practice it. Playing basketball, you practice it. 
If you want to get good at godliness, you've got to put the principles into practice till you get them, till they become a habit in, a habit in your life, till you don't have to no longer think about them. For it says in Scripture, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's what Scripture tells us. So these are the things that constitute true, unfading, and shining beauty of a Christian woman. And these are the things that could be could grasp the attention of the husband because they connect the inner workings of God with the unbeliever. That the man sees within this woman certain things that he sees in nobody, no other women but his wife, and he's taking, he's getting it, it's getting his attention. So the husband sees these inward qualities, but more importantly, God sees them as well. And this becomes really important here, and that looks brings me to that last one, and it's this. It's, it is who first sees your inner disposition that counts. And if you know, notice what it says in verse number 4 of chapter 3, it says these things, it says, which is precious in the sight of God. So see, in other words, she's not really living before her husband. She's living before the, God, the eyes who really count God's eyes. And see, that's what really changes the behavior is when you're living every day before the eyes of God. And then you know that when God sees you live this way, it's precious in his sight. You know what that means? It's of high value in God's sight. If you love somebody, wouldn't you want to do something that is of high value? You would, wouldn't you? You want to do it like that. So these are the qualities that constitute a true and a lasting beauty, the kind that is precious in the sight of God. And don't say, it doesn't work, I tried it. And the reason why you can't say that is because this is a continuing, ongoing attitude and behavior. It never shuts off. So this biblical submission is a continual one. In fact, holy women from time past, including all women who believed in Christ and purposed in their heart to follow God's word, found the answer in the word of God, in their relationship with God himself. And so that means this, that it brings me to this this last one and the example of the Jewish matriarchs. Look at in our text in verse 5 and 6, and especially verse number 5 right now. It says, for in this way, former, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. In other words, it's saying there, listen, here's a well-trodden and proven path for godly women and believing wives who have specifically unbelieving husbands. Here's a proven path. Even though Abraham was believing, Sarah becomes an example, and the older women of former times, but notice what it says, holy women, 
So she's to follow the example of past women who lived in that situation. And of course, what's the first thing in our text in verse number five? She's to be a set-apart woman. In other words, a holy woman. We already went through all the things of what holiness means. Set apart unto God. That's what she is. That's the first thing. A second thing in our text in verse number five is that she is to be a woman who puts her hope in God. If you notice what it says in the text, who hoped in God. And that hope in God is, is equated to belief, faith. She believed God. And she was willing to live in her circumstances with that in her mind. But then also, a third thing in verse number five is this. She's to be a woman whose inner disposition is adorned by an inner, an inward heart subjection. It is because of a, a life orientation toward God that submission and proper conduct can occur. What does it say there in our text? It says, to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, in verse 5. But here's the temptation. A woman may conclude this. I am justified and have good reason for not respecting and submitting to my husband. Well, if a woman has a hard time with the principle of biblical submission... What will she do with Sarah's behavior of not only willful obedience to her husband, but in the title she actually gives her husband? Look what it says in verse 6. It says, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Should I read that again? quiet this morning. She called him Lord, which is a conscious, really, acknowledgement of Abraham's headship and leadership. In fact, Genesis 18.12 says, remember when Sarah laughed? It says, when, when the, well, actually, when the angel of the Lord came and spoke to Abraham and Sarah, saying, you're going to have a child, and it's going to be of your own bodies. Remember that? This is what happened. It says in Genesis 18, 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? She called Abraham her Lord, him being old also. So in other words, the point, the point is, all women should respect and submit be, uh, and submit to their own husbands. That, that's the general principle in Scripture, is that should always be the case. It says, here's the passage again. It says, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So the woman is, is the one who now, through Christ and her conversion to Christ, becomes a child of Sarah, a child of Abraham, right? And then what is she to do? She's now to do good. And as she does that, don't fear intimidation or the intimidation from an unbelieving husband. 
or the counterculture that is against her. Don't fear those things. Just trust God. Leave the results to God. And you just live the way the scripture says to live. And God takes care of the rest. All right? Now, of course, I did not address this morning issues of real violence or times when the police need to be called and pull somebody out of there. There's, there are times for that. I'm not addressing those issues. I'm just addressing the very basic principles in Scripture of an unbelieving husband living with a converted wife, right? Because I've met them. We have people in our church like that, and it's, that's a tough situation to be in. And you know what? That can go on for a long time because it's, there's not necessarily a promise that the person will be one to the Lord, but when the grace of God is being lived out in that particular home and you are carrying out the principles of Scripture, God is saying, I enter in and I do things you cannot do. And in most cases, I would say the conclusion would be the husband gets converted. He comes to Christ. He starts believing the word of God. He starts living what his wife, he starts seeing what his wife's been seeing. And, and then what happens is when, when that happens, God has now taken a family and redeemed it, right? So see, that's all in our scripture for us this morning that I pray that we can actually help people with that are in circumstances and situations like this. And of course, if we do that, I believe that we're going to prevent some unnecessary divorces where people have been counseled wrongly about getting out of their marriage, right? Now, of course, the Bible does address certain reasons for divorce, but that's another subject on another day. And if you want to go back to my preaching on the Gospel of Mark, it's all in there. So let's pray this morning. And let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Lord, I thank you today for the clear witness of the word of God and the instructions that we find there for this difficult situation, this real situation, this situation which some people are in right now. I pray, Lord, that you would help them, that you would... Give them all the necessary means to be able to carry out these principles. I pray the word of God would be available to them and they would make themselves available to the word of God so they can become strong in the faith and they can see what you see, Lord. And then they would submit to the spirit of God and the spirit of God would strengthen them and, and embolden them to live out these principles in their home before their unsaved spouse. I pray, Lord, that in doing that, you may rescue many people. You may rescue many marriages. And that you may give the joy and the peace that comes with obeying the Lord because that woman would know that the way she lives is precious in the sight of God and it's the very thing the Lord said can be used to get the attention of her husband. Oh, I pray, Lord, you would save unsaved spouses. Save them, Lord. Answer our prayers. And I pray that you would enter into their home by your grace so that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ 
and as they believed, the Spirit of God would indwell them and that they too may live out the principles of Scripture and give glory to your name for rescuing them, not only from eternal damnation, but probably, but possibly also, Lord, from the destruction that they could have caused in their own home and to their own children, too. And so I pray this, this morning, in the precious and the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, let's have our men come forward this morning.